Good morning, beloved. Thank you, Joanne and Brittany, for reading God's Word with conviction. And also, thank you for recognizing the paragraph division so accurately that you traded back and forth with the sense units and helped us to hear that. So, when people read Scripture, you can tell by their reading if they believe it or not. And uh, thank you for just blessing us and, and encouraging us through God's Word. This Sunday, we continue in our summer series. This Sunday, we reach the end of First Timothy. We've been looking in a year-long study on disciple-making and the priority of such. We've been looking at these letters, which are Paul's letters to next-generation Christian pastors, younger men, with instructions for them about how to guide and lead the church. And even though these are personal letters, they apply to all of us. At the center of our text this morning, down in verse 12, is this image of taking hold of eternal life. I ran track in college, and I pole vaulted, as some of you know, and occasionally, very rarely, I was brought in on the B team for a two-mile relay race. And what a two-mile relay race is, it's near the end of the track meet, and if the track meet is close, uh, oftentimes teams aren't able to field one team, or certainly not two teams, but if you can field two teams for that and basically just finish, then you have a chance of scoring points. So uh, our B two-mile relay team, the passing of the baton at the end of a two-mile relay after you finish an 800 is very different than what most of us think of when you do a 100-meter exchange, four-by-100-meter race that we think of. It's one of the most popular races in the Olympics. Dramatic, you're coming in full speed. The runner has to take off running before they even have the baton, and yet when the baton is passed, you have to take hold of it. If you drop the baton... The race ends for your team. In the two-mile relay, most runners are coming in after an 800. The track is kind of uh, bubbling in their imagination. Their heart rate is way too high, and people are trying to get to the end. It's not as dramatic, but you still have to take hold of the baton. And this morning, at the heart of this passage, is Paul telling Timothy to take hold of eternal life. Some of us have in our mind that eternal life begins after we die. That's not the New Testament vision. Jesus defines eternal life in John 17. This is eternal life that they might know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life starts the moment you receive Christ. Eternal life is not a quantity of life, but a quality of life. And eternal life, as it starts to grow in you, when you make a commitment to following Christ, all kinds of things start happening. You have new desires, new affections. The attractiveness of sin wanes. Eventually, sin looks ugly to you when it used to look beautiful. All of a sudden, you find yourself generous when you used to hoard. You find yourself caring about people that used to walk past. This is eternal life. You start caring about your children and grandchildren knowing Christ. You start caring about the people around you knowing Christ. You find yourself open to Jesus sending you to places you would have never dreamed going. This is eternal life and it starts the moment we believe. And in this last chapter, Paul urges Timothy to really take hold of it and to lead the church in taking hold of it. Let's say our discipleship definition we've been using this year. 
Will you say this with me? Disciples are committed followers of Jesus who learn to obey him over time and joyfully share him with others. Let's look at this text together and ask God to speak to us and help us see how eternal life starts and flows into every area of our lives. In verse 1, we read that all who are under a yoke as bondservants should regard their masters as worthy of honor. That the name of God and the teaching, Christian teaching, may not be reviled. Eternal life and following Jesus actually affects how we see our life at work. Do you know that your conduct in the world shapes how other people see Jesus Christ? The way that you act in your workplace, it affects how other people see Christ. And the way we work with honor and in verse 2, that's respectful to those who have supervision over us. And that we should work in such a way that glorifies God when we're at work. Remember that in the first century world, one-third of the Roman Empire, that means a third of the congregation, are living in some type of indentured service or work. Some of you may feel that your work, whether it's for a Fortune 500 company or a school, maybe some of you feel like, yeah, that's like the main thing I do. Some of you may have your own business and yet you feel like that's what I do. Work is a huge part of our lives, isn't it? And yet the way that we work communicates love for God. In verse 2, there is the situation that comes up where your boss may be a Christian. And or maybe someone comes to your home and they're going to do work at your house. Maybe they own a, a concrete company and they're going to redo your sidewalk. And as you get to talk with them, we have a habit at our house of offering to pray for everyone who works on our house. And it's a great conversation started and we've never been refused. And yet, have you ever noticed this very peculiar thing that happens when people find out that the man who comes to do the concrete in your house, you find out that they're a Christian. And you say, well, I'm a Christian. And then there's this unspoken thing that happens where people think, how about a discount? <laughs> do you know, I mean, you know that, I don't know where that comes from. There's no Bible verse for that, that Christians give other Christians 10% off. But it, it, like, it like flies into our minds. You're a Christian. Well, how about a good deal? Without me even asking for it. And Paul says actually the opposite. That if you're boss or the owner of the company, that actually then you should, you should do even better work. Maybe when the Christian concrete repair company comes to your house, maybe you should say instead of, hey, how about a 10% discount? Maybe you should say, hey, could you just add 10% to the bill? Because I know that you're trying to provide for your family. And doing good work. And I'm a Christian and I want to support you. How about that? Paul's vision in this verse about those who are working, he elevates work in a breathtaking way. It's hard to see in English, but let me tell you the word that he uses. He says at the end of verse 2 that those who benefit by their good service, the ESV translates good service, the word that Paul uses is their benevolence. It's a word that's usually used of wealthy people who are benefactors. And Paul uses this word to elevate everyone's kind of work. 
When you think of the work that you do, you may work at Chick-fil-A, you may work for Procter & Gamble. He uses this word that elevates all work and dignifies it and says, as a Christian, we work diligently and we're respectful and honoring to those that are reporting. In verse 3, he urges Timothy to teach and urge these things and he urges Timothy to be attentive to anyone teaching a different doctrine that is not aligned with the healthy sound words of Christ. Teaching that accords with godliness. Godliness, a godly life, is the eternal life. And for Timothy, as a young pastor, to guide the congregation, Paul urges him to recognize any teaching that doesn't have as its aim godliness. The real consequence of believing in Jesus is not just so that you go to heaven when you die. The consequence of believing in Jesus is that the eternal life that God meant for us to live starts. And as you read God's word and listen to faithful preaching and teaching, your life starts to change. Places that were ungodly become godly. Places that you didn't give a thought to Christ, all of a sudden he starts standing at the center Teaching that accords with godliness should be encouraged and supported. And it helps you recognize the opposite. The passage takes a strong turn in verses 4 and 5. It's a, it's a nightmare scenario. A nightmare scenario is that, is that there are other preachers and teachers out there. There are cultural influencers. There are others that would seek to guide your life in directions that don't have Christ at the center. He says, such people are puffed up. The Greek word tifo is onomatopoeic. And I mentioned this before. And when you say this word tifo, you are making a sound. So when you listen to a teacher whose sound of their teaching or their direction for their, your life, you listen for that. And it's a puffing up of their own ego. And people with an unhealthy craving for controversy who want to argue about words. Their teaching produces envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicion, and constant friction. That's not the constant friction of a high grit sandpaper that's giving a final clean finish. It's the friction of somebody scraping their keys against the side of your car. Move aside. Let that kind of voice be distant in your life. These are people who are depraved in mind. They're deprived of the truth. And they imagine, worst of all, that godliness is a means of gain. What a devastating line. There are sad examples in church history and even in our own time of people who have claimed the name of Christ but have pursued godliness as a way of making money or exploiting people. I remember as a, as a fairly new Christian hearing about the scandal of the bakers and uh, the, the, the misuse of, mon- of funds that were appropriated and how sad I felt. There are recent examples of that in our own time. And these are devastating examples and painful. And let me just say 
that if you've been hurt by someone who claimed the name of Christ as someone who is a minister of Christ, I want to apologize for that because that can be really hard when someone whom you think should be trustworthy proves out not to be. And for all of us and for our ministry here, it's really critically important that we live in pursuit of godliness in a serious way because people are making their judgment about who Jesus is by how we live and how we serve. Godliness is not a way of exploiting other people. It's not a way of making money off of others. This is a counterfeit vision of ministry. The goal of faithful ministry is seeing godly lives reproduced. Success at Kenwood isn't found in our balance sheet. Success is found in transformed lives. Amen? If you're not in a disciple-making or discipleship relationship, I want to encourage you to, to get into one. We've been emphasizing this in the last couple of years, and I have seen and others have seen just profound change. God works among us as we gather together, as we sing praise, as we hear his word and seek to understand it and live it. And something very profound happens when we're willing to meet one-on-one or in a microgroup with others, where the rough edges of our discipleship can be polished up, where we can have accountability and be strengthened. So if you're not engaged yet in that, let me encourage you to get engaged in that. You can see myself, Pastor Scott, one of our elders, and and we just see increasing momentum in this and seeing real change. Praise God. Godliness is great gain, Paul says in verse 6, with contentment. And this is the great reward of godliness. Contentment is being at peace contentment is being satisfied and the stoic philosophers of the first century often use this word to describe self-sufficiency or independence you are self-sufficient so you're content Uh, you're independent you're not affected by others but that's not how Paul's using this word Paul's using this word with its cultural currency And he uses it in one other place in Philippians 4 that helps us understand what he was really describing. In Philippians 4, he says, I've learned to be content in all things. I know how to be humbled. I know how to to abound. I know how to be full and I know how to be hungry. I know how to have enough and I know how to lack. And how is that? How can you be at peace in every different kind of situation? He says, I've learned the secret. And the secret is this, that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Contentment in Paul's thinking and theological vision is not an abstract virtue. Contentment is eternal life in Jesus Christ flowing through you. So that the life that we have in Christ, the eternal life that we have, we don't have to strive for other things. We pursue godliness. He says if we have food and clothing, we, have, we will be content. He says we brought nothing into the world. In verse 7, we cannot take anything out of the world. Have you ever noticed that babies are born with no luggage? 
right? They just, I mean, they come in with no check bags. And as we get ready to leave this world, you know, there's no, there's no final check-in. There's no line for like extra bags. You can't take anything with you as you leave. This verse is important for its truth. It's also important for one other uh, small point. I know that Kenwood is blessed to have seminary students and some PhD students in it. uh, And we're thankful for that. I want to speak to that group for just 20 seconds. And I know that some scholars question whether these letters are written by Paul. The language is a little different from many of his other letters. And scholars have asked that question, especially critical scholars. Uh, for, in my opinion, this verse is critical for helping us know for sure that Paul wrote these letters. Because 1 Timothy 6-7 is quoted by Polycarp within one generation of its composition. And he attributes it to Paul. So, very early testimony of these letters from Paul. And if you didn't come into church this morning wondering about that, praise the Lord. So, a few of us did. And, uh, and now we all know that we've got good reason, textual evidence, and secondary citation early on. These are Paul's letters. And they're written in a direct and kind of... Uh, uh, blunt way at times, but they are different from his church letters because he's speaking to guys that he knows and that he's poured into. And the relationship can bear the direct speech. He says, if we have food and clothes, we're content. Godliness with contentment is important because it vaccinates you against a different trajectory of your life. In verse 9, Those who desire to be rich fall into all kinds of temptations, into a snare, harmful desires. They plunge people into ruin and destruction. The love of money, he says, is a root of all kinds of evil. That's a dangerous sentence, isn't it? The love of money, it's the root source of all kinds of evil. When you pull a weed out from your garden, some weeds are so tall and they have wimpy little roots. You know those kind? You just pull them up. And you think, how can a plant that tall have a root that small? Other, other weeds, though, you pull it up and it snaps off. And you think, oh, I'll just get the rest of that. And you dig down. And then you have to keep digging. And you have to keep digging. And some of those roots go down deep and it's hard to get rid of those and Paul says as a sole warning that the love of money is it's the taproot of all kinds of evil why is that the love of money promises things that money can't deliver on the love of money inflates our self-importance It feeds our pride. The love of money makes us feel like if we have a certain amount of wealth, then we must be valuable as people. And that's not true. Your worth as a person exists because you're made in the image and likeness of God. It has nothing to do with your bank account or your salary or where you live. Our culture communicates in a thousand ways 
that your worth is connected to the resources you command. But that's not true. And if you point the direction of your life towards accumulation or improving your social standing based on your wealth, you will begin to also embrace another assumption of the culture, which is that my wealth or the resources in my hands are mine. Have you, have you felt that? The culture will suggest you're valuable based on how much you have. But then we pick up this secondary uh, piece of proverbial wisdom from the society around us that says, well, uh, the money that I make, like, that's mine. And I can do with it whatever I want. But that's not the Bible's view of it at all. The Bible's view is, is what do you have that you haven't received? We are not created to be independent or self-sufficient we're created to be God dependent and to be rely on Christ and whatever work we do we work as unto him so other people can see him in us the resources that we have we receive from him and as this passage unfolds we are to use as good stewards and to be investors in his kingdom not for our own fame we won't be taking any of that with us Watch out, beloved, watch out for the love of money because it can strangle your soul. In Jesus' parable, it's what chokes out the seed of the kingdom. In verse 11, he says, But as for you, O man of God, flee from these things. I mean, run away from it. Verse 11 and 12 have this athletic image some of you know I love to run, and so I really love 1 Timothy 6, 11, and 12 because it's a runner's dream passage. He actually says, Timothy, just set out, like lace them up and get out there. Run away from those things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Set out running in pursuit of those is at the heart of the Christian life for you, the pursuit, the effort-filled pursuit of righteousness we are not born with a proclivity to righteousness have you noticed that things kind of lean towards unrighteousness with no effort and yet eternal life in us means we have to run after righteousness we have to run after godliness and pursue it We have to exercise faith and trust in God. And sometimes we have the great privilege of standing in the gap for someone whose faith is wavering. And I will say, I will stand here and believe God with you or on your behalf. We grow in love as we practice it. We grow in steadfastness and endurance as we face opposition. And I don't know about you, but the greatest opposition of eternal life in my soul is actually not from the culture. I don't have a lot of headwinds from the culture saying, David, you just don't pursue so much godliness. Back off. That's not the biggest barrier for me. Maybe it is for you. I'll tell you where the biggest barrier for me is. It's in here. The biggest barrier in, is for me is in here. To say, I'm used to the old life. I think maybe my needs will be met here. Maybe I better hold on to that. But 
the godly life, the eternal life that's rising up within us after faith in Christ says pursue it, persevere, say no to the old man, pull out the weed, dig out the taproot and keep going. And he tells Timothy above all that gentleness would be manifest in him. A gentleness of a good shepherd, compassion on the journey that everyone is on. In verse 12, the athletic image is very clear. He says, fight the good fight of the faith, the ESV translates, which for years I used to think of as a military picture. Fight the good fight, strap on the sword. But reading it in Greek, I realize it's actually a sports metaphor. Because he says the verb that's used here is agonizo, where we get the word agonize, which in English you might think the Christian life is agony. But in Greek, to agonize is actually the verb for sports. The Olympic Games in Greek are called the Olympiokes agones, the Olympic agonies. They are the, the striving, the, the pursuit, the competition, if you will, to win. And to win the, the struggle of faith and to really take hold of eternal life. Do you sometimes leave off to the side the life that Jesus Christ is offering you? Do you sometimes just stay where you are because you're not completely sure if you entrust yourself to him completely where it will go? Do you you hold back? Do you keep a loose grip on the gospel? Or do you really take hold of the baton and seek to live for Christ and pursue godliness and invest that and reproduce that in others? That's the call. That's what he wants Timothy to be about. And if Timothy's about that, then the church will be about that. Paul takes an oath Next, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Jesus Christ. If you ever wondered about the divinity of Jesus Christ, there it is in 1 Timothy 6.13. Charge you in the name of God and of Christ. Who gave his testimony before Pontius Pilate and made the good confession. Jesus bore witness, faced with Pontius Pilate, that he was in fact Messiah and Lord. He charges Timothy to keep the commandment of the gospel unstained. No additions to the gospel, please. Any addition to the gospel is a subtraction. And keep the gospel life, the eternal life, free from reproach. Don't discredit eternal life by how you're living. Don't live inconsistently with our profession. But pursue it. Keep going and keep your eyes riveted on the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. And now Paul, near the end of his life, he looks towards the end, the great ending. The great ending of Scripture is the glorious personal return of Jesus Christ. He will return and all of us will see him. And in fact, not just all of us who are living, but the scriptures teach that every single human being will be resurrected from the dead. Everyone who's ever lived. That's an overwhelming scene. I mean, six billion people are alive right now. 
So think of six billion plus all the people who have ever lived. The scriptures say that all of them will be raised. And they will all stand before Jesus Christ in glory as he appears. The scriptures say that every knee, every human knee will bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every human tongue will one day confess Jesus Christ is Lord. It will be unmistakable. It will be undeniable. And for some on that day when they look at him in glory and they will say he is Lord and it will be a day of sadness for them. Because they will not have acknowledged him as Lord until that moment. And then it will be too late. But for all who believe in him and look forward to his coming, his return is like the visible, glorious finish line. It's the race that we set our course to finish. The race that ends with seeing Christ. The race that runs this life saying, I want to be more like Christ now. So that when I see him, the life that I've been living in him, I embrace my Lord and Savior and he embraces me at the end. And when Paul considers the glorious appearance of Christ, the Savior whom he knows, loves, and has served, he just bursts out into praise. He says of Jesus that it is he who is the blessed and only sovereign. He is the king of kings and lord of lords. He alone has immortality. He dwells in inapproachable light. No one has ever seen or can see him. To him be honor, eternal dominion. Yes, amen. You can't say these verses quietly. You can't get to these verses and say Jesus is a blessed only sovereign king, being his Lord of lords, immortality. No one's ever seen him to him be honored, eternal dominion. Amen. When you say amen, you say amen. Amen is one of those words in English. It's one of our few English words that's a transliteration of the Hebrew word. The Hebrew word for amen is amen. And amen means so be it. Amen is like an exclamation mark of faith. I just figured out recently, one of the younger generation explained to me how to do it. I just figured out recently that you can end a text message and you can add an exclamation mark just by saying it. It's so awesome. You probably already all know how to do this. But I'm kind of an enthusiastic person and I just figured out now that when I finish speaking a text, send so-and-so a text, I say what I want to say and then I just say exclamation mark. And then it just appears. It's so cool. There's no punctuation in the original text, but I imagine if there had been one, there'd be an exclamation mark right here. To him be honor, eternal dominion. That means he rules over everything in my life now and forever. Exclamation mark. And we're going to have to really pursue that, aren't we? Because that's not our natural state. We want to keep certain things to ourselves. But that's not eternal life. Last word he gives for those who are entrusted with significant earthly resources. The rich in this present age. 
And beloved, that actually includes all of us here. From a global view, every one of us in the sanctuary is entrusted with extraordinary resources. And if you've been entrusted with extraordinary resources, don't be proud about it. Certainly don't put your hope on the uncertainty of riches. They can vanish. But set your hope on God. God's the one who provides us with everything to enjoy. And don't don't speak of your life and your position as though you have done it. I think that's offensive to God. We're dependent on God, aren't we? I mean, we, we won't make it through this evening without his sustaining presence. Don't tell your story like all you did. Tell your story what God did. And so that whatever he's entrusted to you, then it's natural that you want to honor God with that. And verse 18, to be forces for good, rich in good works, generous and ready to share. And living that way, you actually store up treasure and a good foundation for the future. And when you live in a way that prioritizes godliness in your own life and the lives of others, you take hold of it. And you don't leave the pursuit of Christ loose in your hand. You don't leave it on the side. Let's take hold of it. Paul's last word to Timothy is to guard the deposit entrusted to you. And this is language that he's used earlier and will use again. The deposit is the gospel. Life in Jesus Christ. To guard it means to protect it from false teaching and counterfeit voices. And to guard the deposit means also to invest it radically in others. To guard the deposit doesn't mean to keep the gospel locked up in a safety deposit box so that when Jesus returns, you can spin the combination and say, I didn't lose it. To guard the deposit means to invest it in others. We've been blessed as a church over many years to have a number of Christian leaders and pastors and missionaries here as uh, guest speakers. We've got an exciting group of people coming next year. Uh, One of those visitors was John Piper who came a number of years ago. And this passage will be forever marked for me by John Piper's visit to Kenwood. (laughs) Because John came and he's just a super intense guy all the time. And uh, people who know him well say he's like that all the time. And he sat down in my office and I thought, and the staff said, you know, John Piper's here. And it's like, I'm coming to my office. And I'm like, John Piper's in my office. So I came in. There he was in the chair. And I, and I didn't even sit down. And he looked me right in the eye and he just said, what are you doing with the deposit that God has given you? <laughs> I mean, there was no like... There were no like social pleasantries or any, you know, there was no like sort of warm Cincinnati vibe or anything. It was just like, what are you doing with the deposit? And I was just like, 
I'm guarding it and I'm trying to invest it. And he's like, good. You know, it's like, okay. But I love that. And I think that's the tone of this. It's just an older, an older, wiser, experienced pastor just speaking directly. And sometimes we need that. Guard the deposit, Kenwood. Be clear on the gospel. And don't hide it, but invest it in lives all around. And to do that and to do all of the things in this letter, Timothy is going to need grace. Grace because he won't get it right sometimes. Grace because sometimes the task will seem overwhelming. Grace because sometimes the pursuit of godliness isn't what we most desire. And we need God's mercy and renewing power to make us strong. I've been so blessed in my life with godly teachers and mentors and pastors whom I can respect. And one of those pastors, Pastor Dave Hansen, and uh, he's not here this Sunday, but he and his wife Debbie uh, attend Kenwood in his retirement. And Dave one time met with me, he met with me every week, helped me to grow as a young pastor. And one time I had been leading a ministry initiative for a few years and it, it, it wasn't going as much as I'd hoped it would and I wasn't sure what to do. Do I work harder? Uh, what should we do? Do I admit failure? Did I do something wrong? And I just wasn't sure. And I, and I thought, have I failed? And I met with him and I kind of just dumped all that on the table and he took a napkin And he started to write on it. And I thought, what's he doing? Is this like a John 8 moment where Jesus is just writing? And and I didn't, I just waited. And then after he finished writing, he put the pen down. He turned the napkin and he just slid it over to me. And it just said, grace, grace, grace. And that was so life-giving. It was just so life-giving to know that we pursue the godliness we take hold but we do that with God's grace forgiving renewing empowering so I don't want you to leave this morning here with a whole lot of regrets I don't want you to feel guilty about the state of your discipleship but I want you to take hold of eternal life in Christ and that is happening and available for all of us by God's grace Amen? Let's take hold of it together and let's pray. Lord, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this chapter, this letter. Thank you for your word that's as relevant to us as it was when it was written. And Lord, we pray that you would wash over us with your grace this morning. And that you would renew us with your presence. And that you would help us, Lord, to take hold of eternal life. And Lord, we ask your forgiveness where we've held back. Where our grip has been loose. Where we've listened to other voices or embraced other cultural priorities than Christ. Lord, forgive us where our conduct has caused you to be dishonored. Forgive us, Lord, for any ways that the conduct of our church has caused you to be dishonored or others to view you with suspicion. We pray, Lord God, that you would help us as a grace 
grace-filled, grace-saturated community to run long, hard, patiently toward the goal of godliness, toward seeing you face-to-face. We thank you for your power in our lives, and we worship you now together. In Jesus' name, amen.